Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 63. We have a special guest on the podcast with us today, but uh, we will not let you know who he is until uh, he jumps into books and business in a few moments. Uh, Tim and Andy, how are you guys doing? Doing great. I'm really excited about today. Yeah, I got the uh, Global Reach Conference going on this week. So um, yeah, a lot of excitement on campus and I'm excited to have our guest here today. Yeah, this should be a really fun, uh, a really fun conversation. So uh, with that, uh, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. Okay. Uh, I will go first. I've got this book. Uh, I'll show it up. We're doing a Zoom call so they can see it. You, the listener on the podcast, you can't see it, but I'm reading Redwall. Red Wall. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, yeah. You've heard of this, Andy. <laughs> I have. I've, this is highly recommended. Uh, is it children's lit? I can't remember, but it's supposed to be really, really good. Yes, it is really good. And it's, it's just your classic... Uh, Virtue, fiction, uh, fantasy type of a, a story. The main character is a mouse, and there's an army of rats coming to the. Uh, uh, I, I would kind of call them like they're monks, and uh, Redwall is where they live. And I'm only maybe like ten chapters in, but I got to give a shout out to Taylor, uh, Taylor Muggy, who going way back, he was a counselor of mine at camp back in 2009. And uh, at a at a Christian camp, and uh, then we progressed to being staff members together. And then he's actually working back at that camp, and has invited me to come back as a speaker. And it was in that setting this past summer, uh, I had taken the Wing Feather books with me, and I was reading through uh, book three and four of Wing Feather, and uh, that got Taylor and I launched into a Christian fantasy. Uh, discussion of books, and he he uh, recommended Redwall to me, and uh, I have really enjoyed it so far. It's it's very light, it's very quick, um, and uh, yeah, I'm loving it. Uh, I I would probably just ballpark it. It's probably going to land in like the four or five range on the goodness scale, uh, but I haven't really gotten to the greater uh, resolutions of the of the plot yet. So it might get better or worse as I go. We'll see. Um, but yeah, so that's what I'm reading. Red Wall, Where Legends Are Made by Brian Jacques. So. Tim, you're muted. Oh, the quandaries of Zoom calls. Yikes. Oh, boy. Well, cool. Very good. Uh, should I go? Yeah. And I've never heard of Red Wall. Sorry. Oh. Does that mean it's not in the bookstore, Tim? It is not in the bookstore. <laughs> if I have not heard of it, you are correct. It is not in the bookstore. Because <laughs> I order... Pretty much everything that comes into the bookstore, uh, <laughs> except for uh, Bible covers and mugs. And for some reason, I don't have a whole lot of say in that department of our bookstore. All right. Uh, the book I've got here is Contributions of Selected Rhetorical Devices to a Biblical Theology of the Song of Songs by Mark McGinnis. So a little bit more of a technical title. That sounds a lot different than a red wall. <laughs> The book I've been reading has been our guest's book, and so I'm pulling something off of the archives here. Uh, very good. 
And so uh, it's actually, uh, it's his dissertation, his doctoral dissertation, which I was printed. And this was actually my first reader for my dissertation. And uh, in the book, he actually goes through the characters in the Song of Songs, which has been really helpful to me. And I've referred back to it on multiple occasions. Who is Solomon? Who are the daughters of Jerusalem? Who are these various characters in the song? He identifies who the characters are and then how characters are used in the Old Testament. And so then how are the characters being used in the Song of Songs? So it's been really a helpful book and my understanding of the Song of Songs. Uh, and, you know, I'd give it like a three on the Thinkling's Goodness scale. It's a really good book. And if you're really going to get into the Song of Songs, I'd highly recommend it. But generally speaking, most people aren't going to be getting into such a technical title. Uh, for my book this week, I will give a recommendation to this book, C.S. Lewis, An Eccentric Genius and a Reluctant Prophet by Alistair McGrath. Uh, back when I taught a class on C.S. Lewis, this is one of our textbooks. Charlie was in this class, so he's read this also. Fun fact about that book. That is the first audiobook I ever finished. Wow. Is because you told me, Professor Stearns, that I could either read it oh, or right. listen to it. I did tell you. And that. so uh, I listened to that because I could speed it up. So, so the audiobook <laughs> is neat because it has some, I think it has some extras at the beginning, if I remember correctly. Um, there's like some bonus material that was pretty nice. So. I like this, so I'm a, obviously a C.S. Lewis fan. And if, I, if, if you had to read a book about Lewis to get to know him, I would always recommend Surprise by Joy. I really enjoy the way Lewis tells his own story. And there's a lot of carryover between Lewis's life and how what he experienced to what we might take away from that as fruitful thoughts for thinking. But if you want to read a biography, this is, I think, I would say a, like an up there biography. If it's purely on his life, if it's about like his written works, there's other, uh, other books. And there's one I'm reading right now that's really good that I'll bring up later. But this one, I think, is, is maybe one of the best. I know there's other good ones. I like the way he lays it out. So he starts off with his early life, of course. And then after that, he goes from location to location. So like part two is Oxford, and it's everything that's happening in Oxford. And then it transitions to part three which is Narnia. So he talks about Narnia, the location, which I think is fun that he adds that in. And then he has Cambridge as part four. Um, and then part five is the afterlife. And there he deals with like the popularity of Lewis and where he's gone from here. Um, the other thing that I like about this book is it has some helpful tools in it and uh, helps. So there's a big timeline of his life. There's all his written works in order. The other thing about it is I think if I remember correctly, when McGrath prepared this, he bought all of Lewis's writings and put them in chronological order. And then he like read them all. And I think if I remember correctly, he read them twice and then he started to write the book. So you're getting a really good read on it. There is some stuff that he deals with at the beginning of Lewis's early life. That's a little surprising, but he's, he deals very carefully with it. Uh, and then most of the way he handles stuff, I think is really, really good. So I would highly recommend this. If you're a Lewis fan, uh, you should read it. And I would say if you're a Lewis fan, you should buy it. So because of that, I'd put it above in the like, I'd say like a seven, eight category. Granted, if you're not a Lewis fan, it's probably going to be a little lower, but I really liked it. So Alistair McGrath's C.S. Lewis, eccentric genius, reluctant prophet. Awesome. Okay. Let me introduce our guest here. Our guest is Dr. David Downing and Dr. David Downing and his wife, Crystal, are co-directors of the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College in Illinois. Downing grew up in Colorado, graduated from Westmont College, and earned his PhD from UCLA. He's a Bruin. I don't know if he uh, 
uh, particularly identifies well with that animal or not. We'll ask him. I, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were from UCLA. Uh, anyway, back to the introduction. Downing has written four scholarly books on C.S. Lewis, uh, Planets in Peril, A Critical Study of the Ransom Trilogy, The Most Reluctant Convert, An Examination of Lewis's Journey to Faith, Into the Wardrobe, An In-Depth Overview of the Narnia Chronicles, which is what we're going to zero in on here in this episode, and Into the Region of Awe, a study of how Lewis's wide reading in Christian mysticism enhanced his own faith and enriched his imaginative writing. Downing also provided a critical introduction and over 400 explanatory notes to the new edition of C.S. Lewis's The Pilgrim's Regress, originally published in 1933 and reissued by Erdman's in the Wade Center annotated edition in 2014. Uh, And then uh, there's a lot of uh, subsidiary things that uh, Dr. Downing does. He is a consulting reader on C.S. Lewis for the Publications of Modern Languages Association, as well as the Christian Scholars Review in Religion and Literature. He serves an editorial consultant for Blackwell's Books, Cambridge University Press, Notre Dame University Press, and several other academic publishers. Downing is also the author of Looking for the King, which came out in 2010. A That's a fiction novel. book. Yes. Historical novel in which two young Americans meet Lewis and Tolkien in Oxford in 1940. So, whew, how did I do on that uh, introduction, Dr. Downing? That sounds good. Thank you very much. I'm glad to join you all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is. It's, hey, important people have big introductions, right? <laughs> yeah, Bruin is a baby bear. So, uh, Bruin was the bears. So, when UCLA came along, they decided to be the Bruins since they were somehow or other the second one to come along sure so uh jump on into uh books and business for us what do you have for us well you all are talking about more contemporary books right now i've been working on pilgrim's progress uh since i wrote that annotated pilgrim's regress i've been asked to speak next spring at montreat college uh the general conference is about the the bible as a literary influence on uh, british literature on western literature so my assignment is to talk about Pilgrim's Progress and then what Lewis got out of it for Pilgrim's Regress. So just this morning, I was looking at, we have about uh, 2,400 books that Lewis owned and marked in. So it's really fun to get out a book with Lewis's markings in it. Wow, that's wow. not fair. I was just reading. <laughs> well, it's, it's a good reason to come to the Wade. We do have research <laughs> grants for people who want to come spend a few days at the, at the Wade. Um, so look for a chance to uh, drive up here and uh, spend a few days and look at Lewis's own library. Oh, that, that would be awesome. Uh, where someone made a derogatory uh, remark about mysticism. I wrote a book on Lewis and Christian mysticism and a book by Samuel Butler said, uh, this is a matter of uh, rational explanation, not mystical intuition. He said very derogatorily. And Lewis wrote in the margin, this man is a fool. So. Uh, <laughs> He didn't miss any words about what he thought of uh, Samuel Butler. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is interesting because Lewis's underlinings correlate very closely to what he did in Pilgrim's Regress. And he decided to retell the story. There's a lot of underlining about the fight with the dragon. And in Pilgrim's Regress, there's two dragons. And there's a lot of underlining about the giant despair, who Lewis turns into Freudianism. The new source of despair is Freud. He also uh, liked. When, uh, uh, thank you very much for those who can't see it, the annotated version. Uh, the reason that we did this project is that 
when I spoke about Lewis around the country, people always say, Pilgrim's Regress, that's the one book I never got through. There's too much French and Latin and allusions to people that I don't know who they are. So I decided to go ahead and, and uh, write an introduction and to identify, I think there's more than 400 allusions, not to mention phrases in Greek and Latin and French and German. And now people right. say, I got through it this time. And you translated all of those in the Wade Annotated Edition and helped the reader through, right? Well, some of them, yes, I did translate. So you could just look in the side note. They'll have a whole chapter, which is a verse of scripture from the Vulgate in Latin. And you don't really get the point of the chapter title unless you can translate the Latin. Yes. I got a lot of help. There's an <laughs> online source uh, called Louisiana.nl. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. It's a scholar uh, named Louis Smilda in uh, the Netherlands. And he's done a wonderful job for several of the books to track down all the allusions and the foreign phrases. So that was a big help on that project. Huh. Yeah, and we do stock that. Oh, sorry, we do stock that in our bookstore. I got to say that. Okay, your turn. <laughs> no, I, I used Louis Sania when I was walking through Abolition of Man because he had a really right. good helpful list of all right. the, the issues, like the topics that he ah, talks about. Right. Yeah. I knew I had heard that somewhere. And that's yeah. probably from you, Andy. Yeah. Well, and I, I think when you were a student uh, in that class, I recommended, I said, hey, this is a good site to get helps too. So, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Well, I didn't I know about that. Ward on Abolition of Man. And he mm. also says he got a lot of help from louisiana.nl. Uh, He's got a new book called After Humanity, which is just an in-depth summary and analysis of abolition of man. Hmm. Who was that by? It's by Michael Ward, the same person who wrote Planet Narnia. Yeah. Uh, I love it when the commentaries are oh. 10 times as thick right as over, the right over here. Course, you know? Oh, you, can, <laughs> you got it over your shoulder there? Yeah, I can't figure out the mirroring, but it's right behind me over here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right Please. now, we're working on... Uh, uh, um, you talked about Surprised by Joy. Marge Mead, the associate director, and I are working on an annotated and illustrated Surprised by Joy. Once again, he mentions a lot of authors you haven't heard of. He throws out a, a, a lot of Latin and mm -hmm. French phrases. And we're not yep. only going to uh, give side notes, we're actually going to have illustrations. When he talks about friends he met at Oxford or teachers he had in, in Malvern, uh, we're actually going to find pictures of them so you can get a, a visual image of what he's talking about. We'd to love to know when that. Here. We would love to know when that comes out. That would be. Yeah. Okay. We'd love to to talk about that. Is that going to be through Erdman's Press again, or somebody else? No, it's probably going to be through uh, Harper. Uh, okay, Harper. Harper yeah. So, uh -huh. Yeah, they have a copyright that's surprised by joy. They're going to bring gotcha. out a number of Lewis books in 2023, which is the anniversary of Lewis's death. Uh, I, I never understand these anniversary issues. Do you ever say? You know, I was going to buy that book, but it's not really. But oh, wait a minute! It's the anniversary. <laughs> Christmas. Grab that, you know. Just marketing. Anyway, and Harper. Kind of a yeah. We're going to do some kind of an anniversary edition that's up to mm -hmm. about two thousand. Nice. We'll have to. We'll be looking for that definitely in our bookstore. And um, Harper Collins is probably one of the best at marketing, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, they they know their business, so uh, yeah. I think they're all right. The Narnia Chronicles have sold over a hundred million. Uh, I love the image. I wrote this novel about these two Americans who meet Lewis and Tolkien in 1940. And by then, uh, Tolkien had written The Hobbit, but Lewis was barely even on the map yet. Nobody knew who he was. Uh, and I love someone saying, see those two tweety old gents in back, uh, you know, <laughs> sipping an ale and talking about philology or history or mythology. One of them's going to write a book that's going to sell 100 million copies. 
And you go, really, which one? Well, actually, both of them. You know, that would do it. Nobody would believe that back in 1940, but it's amazing. Those two old gentlemen became, uh, you know, international bestsellers. Yeah. Reading through your book, like, uh, and how Lewis thought his inspiration was over, like in the later 40s. Right. Right. And that was just so ironic. And that's after that that he produced most of his stuff, much less his really impactful stuff. Yeah, that's true. It's a big thing often. Uh, uh, Coleridge wrote a poem called Dejection and Ode about how he lost his poetic gift. And it's one of his greatest poems. His poems about <laughs> losing his, his creativity is actually one of his most creative works. And Lewis is the same way. He didn't know it. He was right on the verge of uh, creating these seven children's classics. And he thought he'd sort of written himself out. He thought his creative genius yeah. right up. Yeah, it's one of those ironies. Yeah. Fun. So while we're, while we're still talking about the, the books here at the beginning, uh, first, I want to ask you if you would give a rating to The Pilgrim's Progress for us. Uh, and then I do want to mention, because I, I jumped on the uh, Wade Center Instagram and saw that there's a new book coming out on October 28th here that you guys have promoted. And so if you would want to actually tell us about that, Once Upon a Wardrobe, um, if you want to maybe take those two things and give us a little more. Okay, Once Upon a Wardrobe, I should have chosen that as my book I'm reading. Uh, Patty Callahan, who wrote Becoming Mrs. Lewis a few years ago, was a New York Times bestseller. And it's a novel about Joy Davidman meeting C.S. Lewis and they're falling in love and then her discovering she has cancer. Uh, many people think of Joy Davidman as just the woman who died and broke Lewis's heart with grief, with grief of words. But there's kind of a gap of what was their life like when it was full of life and vitality and laughter and intellectual stimulation. So she went back and reconstructed, uh, partly in consultation with Joy Davidman's son, Doug Gresham, uh, what life was like around the kilns when Joy was alive. And that became a best-selling novel. Uh, I definitely recommend that, Becoming Mrs. Lewis by uh, Patty Callahan. And then she's written a new novel, which is coming out uh, next month, called Once Upon a Wardrobe, where there's, she used to be a pediatric nurse. So it's about a little boy who's eight or nine, and he's got a weak heart, and they're really not sure how long he's going to live. Uh, and his older sister is attending Oxford and says, I just read this wonderful book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Could you go see Mr. Lewis and ask him where he got this story from? So the whole novel is a, a number of, this, it, the older sister's visits to, to C.S. Lewis talking about where did you get this scene? Where did you get this scene? And she did a lot of uh, research into his biography. And she came up with very uh, plausible story arc about Lewis slowly revealing things in his own life that went into life, which in the wardrobe. Now, we're doing the book launch on October 28th. I think it's going to be another bestseller. It's a really a charming story. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I just awesome. opened it up. That looks really cool. Yeah. Is that something you're going to get in the bookstore, Tim? Oh, yeah. You better believe it. And if you wondered why we call it Books and Business, now you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I well, should have I mentioned can't... that I managed the bookstore. I, I forgot that element when we uh, started off here. So <laughs> Until there's a hard book... time turning that off. <laughs> there's a bookstore at Faith? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> yeah, when you first said that, I was wondering either shopaholic or kleptomaniac. But I guess if you're... Uh, managing the bookstore you're going to see everything that comes through right yeah i see a fair amount so that might be a good oh go ahead go ahead I didn't get the rating the pilgrim's progress is this a one to ten scale is that where we're on here mm -hmm. 
it is a yeah. one to ten scale. And okay. a little clarification, what's I think it's not really, you know, it's just arbitrary. But what's unique about the scale is typically people think a one to ten, like one is bad, ten is good, and five yeah. is the hinge. That's not how this scale works. To be on the scale, you, one is good. Like we're saying this is worth a read. But then once you progress up to the top of the scale, like eight is you probably want to own this book. A nine is you want to own it and read it uh, probably more than once. And 10 is like, this is a, a, a pinnacle book. Like this is a very strong show. So um, okay. yeah. And with that, what edition of Pilgrim's Progress? Preferably one in print that I could sell, you know, just throwing that out <laughs> oh, there. Oh, my word. <laughs> oh, my word. Well, you know, it's on Gutenberg now, so you can get the whole thing online. There's a classic. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Look at that answer. right there. <laughs> that was the wrong answer. That was a beautiful answer, Dr. Downing. <laughs> Horrendous. The one I use is the old Penguin Library. This is a good one from Penguin. Yeah, it's all the Bible a classic one, though, is by a fellow named George Offer, O-F-F-O-R, because he, as an editor, he gives you a lot of notes on something in Bunyan's life. Maybe the Slough of Despond was actually a big marsh outside of Bedford, and maybe the Delectable Mountains were the Chilterns, which you see when you're going from Bedford to London. So that's a really interesting addition for not only biblical allusions, but also uh, biographical references. You can actually take a... Uh, a trip from Bedford to London and see a lot of the features of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, he made that trip often, and I think he just thought of geographical features in his life to represent um, the Slough of Despond, the Delectable Mountains, the, uh, the prison. There actually was a prison on the way to London uh, where he spent some time himself for being too much of a nonconformist. Mm. So it's, uh, I would, the classic edition is by George Offer, O F F O R. But um, the Penguin edition is very good. So it's very helpful. Very good. Thanks. Now, oh, rating. The, uh, the book, A Seven or So, it's a classic. It sold 100,000 copies in Bunyan's lifetime back in the 1600s. Uh, but it's got a lot of negative spiritual energy. When you read Lewis's books, there's this feeling of, okay, you're saved. You've escaped hell. Now let's grow in God. Let's grow in grace. And there's really a feeling that it's, it's exciting to be a Christian. The, the more you surrender self and the more you grow close to God, the more and more opportunities, wake, more and more you sense grace in your life. Compared to Lewis's books, Bunyan is very negative. The reason that uh, Christian leaves the city of destruction is because he wants to escape being uh, destroyed. Whereas in Pilgrim's Regress, He's drawn by this positive energy of the, the island. There's this exotic island that uh, the character John sees. And so his, his uh, pilgrimage is really a positive thing to find the source of joy or the source of So I'm going to have to say, after reading Lewis, Bunyan's a bit of a downer. There's a lot of uh, becoming a Christian to escape hell. And a lot of the characters he meets, they're primarily trying to talk you out of faith. And I would rather talk about growing in faith rather than having constantly people uh, telling you why you should be a Christian. So I'm going to have to knock off a few points on a literary classic. Uh, I'll probably have some Bunyan scholars filling up my email box once this, uh, once this podcast is aired. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Nice. That's good, too. <laughs> uh, it's helpful, okay. though. It's interesting to think through. Mm -hmm. 
So I was going to, when I introduced you, I was going to actually say a little bit about the Wade Center because that was the first line of your of your biography there was that you are a co-director of the Wade Center. And I, I, I'm struggling to come up with one word that describes the Wade Center. Is museum an apt term to describe it or is it something else? Well, it's evolved. It started out as a research archive. Uh, back in 65, a very uh, forward-looking Wheaton professor named Clyde Kilby started collecting Lewis and Tolkien's manuscripts at first edition. He had a feeling back in 65, Lewis had only been dead for two years, that these authors were going to have legs. They were going to be very important for this whole generation. So he started the collection. It was just a room in the library. And then it became its own wing of the library on campus. And finally, in 2001, um, they built a separate building to house first editions, letters, we have 20,000 books. We have uh, 900 dissertations. We have every journal on our seven authors. You could easily write a book or a dissertation without ever going online. Everything's physically available in the waste. Mm -hmm. So now the three parts to the, the reading room or the research collection. But so many people came, we started collecting artifacts. We have Lewis's wardrobe, this old heirloom that was in his home in Belfast. And when he and Warren were little, he and his brother, they would climb inside the wardrobe and tell stories. So they associated a wardrobe as a, as a portal to imagination. So I think it's very natural that in growing up, he says, well, where, what's their portal going to be to the world of fantasy, to the realm of fairy, as, as Tolkien called it? And so we have the wardrobe, and we filled it with fur coats. We have children coming in all day, open the wardrobe, and reach through the coats and knock on the back to see if it leads somewhere. Think about putting in a, a hinge door and so they fall in and they come out in the gift shop. You know, instead of going to Narnia, <laughs> they would end up in gift shop yet. Yeah, so we, uh, uh, we also have Lewis's desk and we have Tolkien's desk. We have a, one of Tolkien's dip pens. They both like writing with a dip pen. They didn't like fountain pens or ballpoint pens. Somebody said that Lewis was the master of the six-word phrase because you can get about six words out of uh, one dip of the dip in the inkwell. And, but Tolkien's pen, the nib of the pen is blackened from the ink, but the top of the pen is, is brown, stained, and melted. And uh, we found out from his son, Christopher, that Tolkien would tamp uh, out his pipe while he was writing. So, he, so on one side, he's <laughs> using the dip pen, and at the top, he's using to uh, stir the tobacco in his pipe. So he was a great <laughs> multitasker. Yeah, it's a great artifact in terms of the creative process. That is fascinating. So, yes, there's a lot going on at the Wade Center, and I can't believe uh, all three of us. We haven't been there, correct? You oh, guys haven't a, been there. It's a bucket list. I, I've yeah. been there, but it was before I could appreciate such things. How far? Yeah, just like from Wheaton. How far do you think uh, Des Moines is from Wheaton? Like, like five hours. Five hours. Yeah. Yeah. And as I say, we have research grants. You should go online and and uh, see if a grant might apply to you. And, come up for two or three days and check out the reading room. We also, you mentioned uh, facilities. We have a museum space, we have a reading room, and then we have an auditorium now. We've had so many events, we've outgrown the classroom. Five years ago, we added a 120-seat auditorium for wow. speakers and book launches and other events. That's awesome. So go back to that. I mean, you mentioned, I'm actually, I have, a, I have a picture of it pulled up, or I did. I thought I had a picture pulled up. Where did it go? Well, anyway, they can't see that anyway. Oh, there it is. There it is. 
I have a picture pulled up of the wardrobe there at the Wade Center. And this is, you know, as a, it, it's not necessarily official, but, you know, it's a recorded entity that will go out. But I have to ask you, have you climbed in that wardrobe, Dr. Downing? I don't think I'd better. I'm not sure. Uh, it's got a, these, it's got the hanger, and then it's, the floor is about a foot off the ground. And I've seen some little children try to climb into it. I've reached into it, but I don't think I'd better climb into it. If I was known as the person who broke the wardrobe, that would be <laughs> on my obituary, it would say David Downing, the guy who broke the wardrobe. But no, I don't, I don't think I'll climb into it. <laughs> Very good. Well, that that is as official of a no as I think we could get, uh, which is, you know, I was kind of hoping, you know, we'd get some, uh, you know, side stories of when I climbed in the wardrobe, here's what happened. But anyway, uh, or maybe perhaps you were uh, one of the unlucky ones to lock yourself into the wardrobe. Um, well, you know, this uh, originally didn't mention that. And when Owen Barfield's wife read the draft of language wardrobe, she said, oh, make sure you tell them not to lock themselves in. Uh, this one won't even, uh, I don't think you can lock it from the inside. I think our, our children are safe. I called my book about the Narnia Chronicles into the wardrobe, a pun on going into the wardrobe and then looking at yeah. it more analytically. It was translated into uh, Spanish and Portuguese and Korean and Polish. This was right when the first set of movies was com first coming out. So everybody was really interested. I, I can't read Polish. Uh, one of my colleagues does read Polish. He said, why did you call this book Exploring the Cabinet? And I said, no, no it's, it's Into the Wardrobe. And he says, well, that's not what it says in Polish. Uh, oh. So be careful about lost in translation. You never know what your work will come out like in some other language. Absolutely. So let's, let's dive in, uh, maybe turning squarely at uh, the wardrobe, your book, Into the Wardrobe, and starting to discuss the Narnia books. So when did you first read uh, one of the Narnia books? What was your first introduction to uh, the Narnia series? Charlie? Well, I didn't them to, go ahead. Sorry, one thing. I was waiting for a break in the production so Charlie could edit this out. Charlie, you asked me about recording in four separate tracks. I forgot to turn that on. So I think this is just recording in one track. Do we want to stop the podcast or stop the recording and restart so we'd have two? Or do we want to just keep going? Um, I think keep we're fine going. just to keep going. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Thanks, Doctor Downing. Sorry, just production okay. side point. We want to make okay. sure. All right, okay. I'll leave that in there too. The listeners will no, 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 no. <laughs> Charlie likes this. Yeah. Okay. No. no. It's raw. <laughs> it's real. You know, Little brother. Okay, so let me ask the question again then. So, when did you first read one of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia books? What was your first introduction? I didn't read them till college. I didn't read any of Lewis till college. Uh, I grew up in Colorado from a very uh, conservative church. And uh, it wasn't until I went out to Westmont and the professor included Paralandro, part of the uh, Ransom Trilogy, the second book on the syllabus. And it just blew me away. Uh, I, I liked science fiction, but I never thought about science fiction as being a vehicle for theological reflection or uh, you know, spiritual exploration. So I asked my mom, why didn't she give me the Narnia Chronicles when I was a kid? And she said, well, Lewis smoked and drank and he was an Anglican. So I just wasn't sure how spiritually solid the books would be. So that was her reason that I, I never read uh, Lewis as a child. 
Uh, I read Paralandra first. I was so enthralled by it. I started the Narnia Chronicles, and I read all seven of them in two weeks. Oh, and I was wow. so sad when they were over. I reread them again in the next two weeks. By, within a month, I went from not reading them to reading them twice. Wow. I guess that would make them, uh, on your scale, isn't reading them more than once, isn't that put something very high on your scale of readings? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. Uh, I was surprised. Uh, I was struggling with my faith when I went off to college, and Lewis was, like many people, uh, he was a major uh, influence in getting me to think about my Christian faith in a much more exalted view of God and a much more expansive view of the Christian faith. So I uh, read all the Chronicles, all the Ransom Trilogy, Mere Christianity and Miracles. The one that tripped me up was Pilgrim's Regress. I couldn't get through Pilgrim's Regress. So I felt like I owed it to other readers later in life to go back and make that easier for other readers. Sure. So how did you get from, which I, I, I don't know if I said or saw in the uh, biographical information, when you went to, is it Westmont? Westmont? Westmont. It's Santa Barbara. Westmont. Oh, Santa Barbara. Okay. Um, the only reason I know of that town is because there's a... Uh, semi-popular TV show that was supposed to take place there. Um, but uh, so when you went off to college, did you see yourself going into an academic related career like a professor or manager of something like the Wade Center? And how did Lewis maybe change that direction or repurpose that direction? If you could maybe speak to that. Yes. Well, um, my uh, parents didn't go to college and that wasn't as you know, a lot of baby boomers were the first in their generation to go to college. I wasn't thinking of graduate school or I wasn't thinking of an academic career. Uh, young people are very suggestible. I had an English professor at Westmont who said, you know, you're really good at interpreting literature and talking about literature. You should think about graduate school. And I said, uh, yeah, that's true. I do like reading and I do like talking about literature. But the thought had never occurred to me independently. Uh, I'm so glad that he gave me a good suggestion. I'm glad that, you know, he didn't say, uh, you know, you're very resourceful. You should become a bank robber. I probably said, oh, yeah, maybe I should be a bank robber. Uh, but no, he, he pointed me to uh, academia and especially to uh, English. And a part of that emphasis was how much I loved reading and talking about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, when I got to graduate school at UCLA, I wanted to do my dissertation on Lewis and my uh, advisor, who was a Christian, his name was George Tennyson. He said, well, in mainstream academia, Lewis doesn't really have the kind of traction that famous people like Virginia Woolf or uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne have. So I said, well, I think I can prove that the Ransom Trilogy is serious literature. It's not just speech reading. And he said, well, why don't you wait till you graduate? And then why don't you write a book that uh, proves that the Ransom Trilogy is, is serious literature? So that was the genesis of my book called Planets in Peril. I was trying to go through those three books and show how much of his Christian faith is in there, his, his expertise about medievalism, uh, just the moral psychology that he got from his Christian faith. So that was my first book. It actually came as a suggestion from a professor of mine at UCLA. That's fascinating. And uh, I, I've read Planets in Peril. And uh, at this point, uh, I have a little bit of a pivot question, and it's not in your notes, so I didn't want you to prepare for this. It's just off the cuff. So Horrendous. we're talking about, yeah, I think they know, Tim and Andy know what I'm going to ask you. 
So here's this book written you know, way back in the day, uh, and I'll just say pre-moon landing uh, about us going into space. You know, here's these three right. guys gallivanting off to the planets. Do you think that we actually have done something like this and landed on the moon? I thought oh for word. a second you were going to say my book, Plants in Peril, was pre-moon landing. And I was going to go, <laughs> oh, no. that old. Yeah, <laughs> that far back in the day. Uh, well, when, the, uh, uh, when, it, when they started the space program, Lewis said, it looks as if the blackguards are going to land on the moon. He thought that was an act of blasphemy and irreverence to uh, the land oh, on wow. the moon. Wow. So, he actually got the idea not from science, but from H.G. Uh, Wells' first men in the moon. He often yep. took fantasy and science fiction that he enjoyed and recast it in more of a Christian context. But he wasn't happy about uh, the prospect of, of landing on the moon. He died in 63, and the moon landing was 69. But on one of the landings, the, uh, the astronauts got out of golf a club and hit a golf ball on the moon. And I think Lewis uh, just would have felt that uh, that person was due to Dante's purgatorio. <laughs> it was like a, you know, just like a cathedral. <laughs> uh, let's see if I can point right. Right there is Dante somewhere in that zone. But yeah, um, <laughs> this pointing is over my shoulder. Story. Kind of a side story, but I came from a non-Christian college. Chris and I have only been at uh, the Wade Center at Wheaton for three years. And uh, at my, this is a contrast to students. At Elizabethtown, which is a good school, but not a Christian school, a student said, I read The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, and I enjoyed the story, but I don't understand why people say it's Christian. And I said, well, Aslan dies for someone else's fault. Uh, they're, they're heartbroken because he's gone. But then he returns again, and they're jubilant. Doesn't that remind you of anything? And my students said, oh, it's like Gandalf and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I just, we've just gotten this invitation from Wheaton. And I said, you know, I think it's time to go to Wheaton. So my wife and I came three years ago to mm. Wheaton to head the Wade Center. And by contrast, I was teaching a course on C.S. Lewis here at Wheaton. And there's a line in that hideous strength where uh, this guy, Frost, has dementia. And he says, so full of sleep are those who leave the intellectual good. And one of my students who had been homeschooled, she raises her hand and says, isn't that a line from Dante? And I couldn't wow. believe not only that she knew Dante. You say Dante in other colleges, they think Dante Culpepper. They remember the old uh, quarterback. <laughs> uh, she not only knew Dante, but she recognized this line is coming from the Inferno. So I'm very impressed wow. with Wheaton students. They're they have very good cultural literacy. and biblical literacy. That's awesome. So just to backtrack a little bit, you did, you did seem to signify that you think we actually did land on that moon. You don't have to answer. Tim, we need an eye roll quickly. Come on, man. I gave like three. You just couldn't see them. <laughs> we'll just, we'll just slide right on past that. Why don't, uh, Tim and Andy, you guys have uh, some questions you want to jump in with. Sure. I have one. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Downing, I, when I first read the Chronicles of Narnia, I read them in the publication order. I didn't, I mean, right. I think I was going to plan on teaching a class on C.S. Lewis at our seminary. And so I was working through C. Lewis's stuff and I had found out that there was a publication order. But I also remember in second grade, I went to a Christian school 
And my teacher during like reading time, she read us the line, the witch in the wardrobe. So I had somehow known that that was first. So I read them in publication order. Then I went to go buy a box set and they're in a much, they're in a chronological order. Now in into the wardrobe, you, you talk about this. What, what is your preferred reading and how strongly do you think the person ought to read it in the order that you think? Well, my preferred reading is the publication order. With Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe first, uh, Lewis uh, was very good about writing to children. They would write him about the Narnia Chronicles, and he would respond. And little boy wrote and said, my mother and I disagree. I think you should read them in Narnian chronological order. So you should start with creation, which is the magician's nephew, and then go to Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he's, Lewis wrote back and said, oh, that makes sense. Now, he wasn't putting his official imprimatur on that. He was just being you know, cordial and agreeable to the student. So Walter Hooper, who was Lewis's literary executor, when they came out with a new edition in, uh, I think it was 94, it was in the 90s, he said, well, let's go ahead and, and go with Lewis's wishes and put them in the order of Narnia chronology. Um, and the last time I talked to Walter, he just passed away last December, he said he wished he hadn't messed with it. Oh, uh, because wow. most Lewis scholars, including me, think you should read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. When they first hear the name Aslan in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, they say Aslan is on the move. They all have this numinous inner stirring. They don't even know what it means, but it has this magical, almost mystical uh, evocation in their hearts. And uh, so I think you should stick to the order in which it's, it's also fun to have this lantern in the middle of lantern waste, not know how it got there. And later on, you find out in Magician's Nephew how that lantern got there. If you read uh, Magician's Nephew first, he says, this will explain all the comings and goings between Earth and Narnia. And if you read it first, you go, what comings and goings? I'm not aware of any comings and goings between Earth and Narnia. So um, most scholars, including me, say stick to the publication order. And I think as it developed in his imagination, originally he was only going to write one. And then he said, well, maybe it should be a trilogy. And then he decided to go for seven. So the, the idea kept evolving in his mind. But I, I do strongly think you should start with Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. I love that answer. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> that that kind of opens the, shall I say, opens the wardrobe on another question, which you mentioned, you know, there's there's editing being done to the order. I actually, while I was reading Into the Wardrobe, you make a comment about how the name of the wolf right. that is uh, in the White Witch's uh, entourage has changed. And if you buy a certain copy from a certain year, you'll see that it's this and it's uh, from Norse mythology. And I read that and I was like, you're kidding me. So I actually, and here again, I bought one. Um, <laughs> and interestingly enough, this is pre-1990s. So it says book one. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because that shift oh. hadn't taken hadn't taken yet, right up there. And but sure enough, I went and checked, and it's like, huh, look at that. The wolf is not uh, Mogram; it's uh, a different name. And right. uh, so, kind of on that idea of the the ordering, have there been internal changes with different editions over time, or do we have a faithful representation of what Lewis created? Uh, there haven't been too many changes. Uh, he originally started writing the Narnia Chronicles 
back in the late 30s. They had children in his home that were escaping the, the bombing of London in 1939. So did the Twins. And he started one paragraph in 1939 in which the four children were Anne, Rose, Martin, and Peter, who was the youngest. And this shows why you shouldn't show away your creative, you shouldn't throw away your creative scraps. Uh, he left that one paragraph for almost a decade. And then in the late 40s, he started over again and he changed the name of the children. And now Peter is the oldest. Um, the main changes are the name of the head of the secret police is it's Maugram in the original British edition. But then when it came out in the American edition, he changed it to Fenris Alt. Fenris the Wolf is uh, a character in Norse mythology who swallows the sun. Um, and I actually like that allusion. When, before Lewis became a Christian, he wrote some war poetry called uh, Spirits in, in uh, Bondage. And one of the poems mentions Fenris the Wolf eating the sun. So I like the fact that this image of despair mm -hmm. from his pre-Christian days becomes a figure who can be defeated by Peter uh, once Lewis became a Christian. So that name changed. Uh, when they first go to um, the professor's house, they all say, oh, we're going to have so much fun. We might see stags or we might see beavers or we might see, and the animals have changed. He decided to make them all symbolic. In the British edition, it was somewhat random, but in the uh, American edition, he lined them up with the character of the person. So Lucy, I think, I can't remember the page number, but uh, Edmund wants to see, there might be snakes. And it's kind of an early clue that, that Edmund is gonna kind of be seduced by the serpent of Narnia. Uh -huh. so we changed the names of the animals. Uh, the main other changes are in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In the first British edition, they go to the dark island, the island of dreams, but not just dreams, the island of nightmares. And uh, in the British edition, when they come out, they'll go, oh, we're so silly, that was only a dream. How come we were so scared? And they look back and the dark island has vanished. And several people wrote to him and said, oh, you shouldn't make so light of nightmares. That can really be disturbing. And they can haunt their waking life. And Lewis remembered his own uh, disturbing nightmares. So for the American edition, he went back and they didn't poo-poo the dark island. And when they looked back, it had receded into the distance, but it hadn't disappeared. So oh. he decided to uh, give a little huh. bit more psychological depth to that episode of the dark island that is fascinating yeah tim you gonna jump in yeah i um, I, go ahead can i do a follow-up really quick on the narnia order before we move on um so it seems pretty clear and you've you've pointed this out that the ordering probably i mean we're saying probably what we think yes it should be in the publication order for for a number of reasons I've also enjoyed thinking about it like in my own life, I grow up living my life and then at a certain point in life, I look back to understand it and then I keep going forward. So I think there's like a life element to that too. It seems like it's pretty clear that it should be in publication order. Do you think publishers are going to catch up to that? Uh, or do you think they're like, why do you think they haven't changed? It seems like there's been enough scholarly work done that some of them would go back to the other order. Uh, that's a good question. The normal rule in uh, literary scholarship is you use the last edition in the author's life because you figured these are the changes that they wanted to make unless they okay. got senile. The exception is Henry James. As he got older, his prose got more and more complicated and more and more unreadable. And he thought he was improving his early novels. He was actually making them almost impossible to read. 
So Henry James scholars say, go ahead and read the early editions. Don't read his latest version. But most, most authors, if he changed the name from Maugram to Fenris Ulf, he must have had a reason to make that change. And I think editors should respect that. Um, so I, I don't think they're going to change. It's become so, uh, you notice when they made the movies, they made Lion, Witch, the Wardrobe yeah. first. Uh, yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see, uh, Netflix just bought the uh, rights to Narnia for 250 million. And so, I, and I believe they're planning to bring them out in publication order. So I think the <laughs> oh, best awesome. chance for them to come out in publication order will be once those movies arise. Yeah, that's, that is on our list of things to discuss. And uh, there was just, this is, you know, narniaweb.com. It was the first thing that came up on a Google search. And uh, this is October 1st of 2021. Uh, there's the discussion on what, ex they still don't really know exactly what is going to be produced. If they're going to start by reproducing the movies again, if they're going to start with like a more TV uh, series where it's shorter episodes um and a lot of discussion about the narnia universe and its uh, uh rich group of characters but that that number actually jumped out to me as like i did not you know if you think about what netflix normally puts on netflix it doesn't seem to me that they're like oh yeah let's spend 250 million on lewis's chronicles of narnia that doesn't seem like a you know but in the same vein here's uh jeff bezos with amazon and he knows what uh, Lord of the Rings offers him. So, uh, Dr. Downing, do you have any insight on what you think they're going to do on Netflix with that? Have you heard any rumors through that wardrobe or anything? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, the best source I know is Doug Gresham, who's Lewis's stepson. Uh, if you've ever seen the film uh, The Shadowlands, he's the little boy who's weeping with Lewis in the attic over the loss of his mother and Lewis's wife. And even he doesn't know what they're going to do. Uh, there's quite a bit of anxiety in the Lewis world and the Tolkien world about, because they're talking about Narnia world, kind of like the world of Marvel or DC Comics. And most of us would like them to stick to the stories that Lewis wrote. And we're afraid, they're even talking about nudity in the, uh, the Amazon series. They're going back and doing the, uh, the first age and the second age of, of uh, Middle Earth. And they're talking about nudity and they're talking about new kinds of characters that don't appear anywhere in the books. And so everybody's going to, uh, uh, is nervous about their, just thinking about this being a cash cow and not about respecting the creative world that the authors made. So uh, as I say, Doug Gresham himself says, since they signed the contract, they haven't consulted with him or talked about what they're doing. So it's, if he doesn't know, then I definitely don't know. Okay, uh, I had a question. I've even talked to my children about uh, fiction, writing fiction, what is good fiction, and even uh, with children. I have five children, uh, ages uh, six to thirteen, and um, and so when when we're even critiquing a movie or talking about a movie or talking about a book and how we evaluate it, you had some really interesting insights in your uh, into the wardrobe book about how Lewis sought to communicate fiction. Uh, one specific area was moral, moral ambiguity and how uh, children are learning a moral compass. And so if you're throwing these movies in that are, um, have morally ambiguous characters, 
then then you're really kind of creating gray areas or confusion in their minds as far as what's right and wrong. And so I don't know if maybe you could just interact with that. And that was one of the really big things I took out of your book. I really liked your book and how uh, I could see more how Lewis was writing fiction and how he was teaching theology through fiction, uh, but still telling a story uh, in even several areas that I, I didn't even catch. So I don't know if you can maybe just interact with some of that component. Well, he wrote an interesting essay called It All Began with a Story about the Narnia Chronicles. And he said, people sometimes think that I sat down and said, what are the key Christian doctrines? Uh, and then how shall I embody them fictionally? Maybe Christ will be a lion and maybe uh, sinful humanity will be Edmund. But he said he didn't do it nearly that intellectually or didactically. He said he started out with images uh, of a lion, of a beautiful witch on a sledge or a sleigh, and of a fawn with an umbrella on a snowy day. And he said he always started with pictures, and then the pictures began to connect themselves. And the themes got entangled in the story because he said, that's the cast of my mind. That's the way I think about human beings. Uh, he gave a lot of psychological depth to these characters. I have a whole chapter on Edmund's uh, moral journey, his moral descent, and then his moral recovery. And a lot of that is because he was so in touch with his own childhood. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, a good novelist needs to be able to remember emotionally. You don't just say, oh, yeah, high school, there's my picture in high school. You actually remember all the neuroses and anxieties and, and uh, uh, wonders of, of that stage of your life. So uh, one critic said that the Narnia, Chronicles, the Narnia Chronicles were not exactly written for children as much as Lewis was writing for the child in himself. He's writing to himself as an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old. And as part of the reason the vocabulary is so difficult, when I wrote this book, I told my publisher I wanted to include a glossary. And uh, the editor said, no, no, this is children's fiction. You don't need a glossary. And then she looked at the list, and there was Portcullis and Chatelaine and uh, all these phrases, uh, allusions to Shakespeare. And she said, yeah, I think we do need a glossary. Uh, <laughs> so he's thinking of himself as a precocious nine or 10-year-old rather than thinking of children in the 50s when he was writing. Hmm. That's good. That's helpful. So, I mean, as you think through the moral and teaching theological truth and this, even the concept of, re, of, uh, of ransom re, uh, um, uh, justice, where Edmund's sin can't just be done away with, right. there has to be a payment for it. Right. And then communicating these um, theological concepts through these characters uh, and teaching children theological truths that are based upon biblical revelation. I don't know, I just was thinking through even as, as uh, communicating fiction, and you've written a fiction book and I haven't read it yet, but communicating fiction, uh, particularly to my children and impressing in them a true sense of what Christian discipleship looks like, what real sacrifice looks like, and then how Lewis sought to do that through fiction. Well, I think a lot of moral growth doesn't come through uh, teaching or proverbs or something just intellectual, but it comes through role models. Uh, there's a lot of little incidents in Narnia where Ribuchip in Prince Caspian, he loses his tail in the battle, and your tail as a mouse is a source of great pride if you're a valiant little uh, uh, rodent. 
And uh, so, but all of his followers, all the mice say, well, if our leader doesn't have a tail, then we're going to cut off our tails. And Aslan decides that he's going to uh, put his tail back on. He says, not because of your pride, because of the love of your followers. And it's just mm. a little incident where you can, you can live without a tail. You shouldn't say just out of pride, I need to have a tail. But when he saw how much the other mice loved to reap the chief, he decided to restore his tail. And it's not a deep insight, but it's just a little example of why would God intervene in your life? It may not be to help you recover your pride, but it might be something just, you know, seeing how much others love you. So I think the Narnia Chronicles, there's probably a hundred little moral lessons like that. Yeah. Uh, they, many of them uh, are around Edmund in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and around Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Mm -hmm. His yeah. transformation is really wonderful to watch. And the whole incident with when he becomes a dragon and has to be de-dragoned by uh, Aslan. But there's a lot of theological and moral depth in that, in that uh, passage of the story. Yeah, I've, I've alluded to that setting that scene in a sense of, of talking through and i think you could maybe draw some lines over to the great divorce with some of those discussions but I, in, in the I, sense of 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 sanctification what does it look like and uh just the picture of aslan is the one doing it it wasn't a snap of the fingers it was a process that took a couple of cycles and uh and then you know how that is right alongside of uh, and you, you talked about um, Edmund a lot, and, and but how Eustace goes through those same emotional right. decisions of of recognizing the ramifications of his choices and things like that. I, that that to me, the first time I read that uh, chapter and that scene, it just fascinated me. And yeah. um, but then also how in the Great Divorce, there's this scene where there's this little uh, salamander dragon thing too, right. and how. Uh, the guy just doesn't want to get rid of it and then he does and then poof uh here's this beautiful horse you know and it's, it's right. just this i've always wondered and i'd be interested to hear what you think uh, to hear what you say uh if there's a correlation between those ideas from the great divorce to uh the voyage of the dawn treader i don't know i i think there is and i think you could add to that a scene in a privilege regress where uh john's friend uh named virtue he wants to get through the, the uh, Grand Canyon called the Cotton Adai, the sin of Adam. He wants to get past it by moral effort. He thinks if he's a really good rock climber, he can get over this chasm on his own. And when he discovers that he can't, he gets very weak and uh, apathetic and doesn't want to do it himself. And I think Lewis likes to keep making the point that you can't fix yourself. You can't just use moral discipline or moral effort to become the person you want to be. Uh, there's a letter of Lewis's. He was talking to his friend, Arthur Greaves, about pride. And he says, I know I have a problem with pride. People tell me I'm too prideful. I try to get rid of it, and then, then I'm proud of something else, and I try to get rid of that, and I'm proud of something else. And finally, I feel pretty humble, and then I'm proud of my humility. And that letter really reminded me of Eustace trying to tear off all these layers of dragon skin. And finally, uh, Aslan says, well, I think I need to do this. And he takes a great claw. And he strips off all the layers and out comes the little boy Eustace again. Uh, and it's very similar to the scene where the guy with the lizard on his shoulder, it seems to represent lust or addiction, anything you can't get rid of in your life. And the angel says, uh, well, I'm, I need to remove that. And then it really hurts. Says, mm. you know, that really hurts. He says, well, I've been 
I said I wouldn't kill you. I didn't say I wouldn't hurt you. So there's something about uh, the death of self, or the death of ego, that needs to be a part of your spiritual transformation. So I definitely agree with you. Those two scenes thematically have a lot of the overlap. The next question I have is just about the space trilogy. Um, like relationship, or first of all, is it the space trilogy or the ransom trilogy? And and then some of the theology in the space trilogy. So for me, Paralander was like my favorite. And these guys, I think Andy likes that idea of strength and that I don't know where Carter is. So wonderful. Paralander's really I, good, but oh, that <clears throat> his strength is so great. We all have different favorites of the three. I'm and we want to know. And we want and we want to know what your favorite is, of course. And and so anyway, talk to us just a little bit about that space trilogy, ransom trilogy, and these guys will probably pop in some questions too. Okay. Um, well, I prefer the ransom trilogy. In, in my book, I argue that in Out of the Silent Planet, when he gets uh, kidnapped and taken off to Mars, he gets out in space and he thinks it's going to be dark and cold and empty, and it's full of you know radiance and bright colors. And he finally says, oh, the medievals were right. It's not space. It's not empty. It's the heavens. And he actually quotes a little bit of Milton there. So Lewis himself makes fun of the, uh, the term space. And then when you think about it, all three stories take place on planets. So I prefer, Lewis once called it interplanetary romance. So I'd rather say uh, the, uh, the cosmic trilogy or the ransom trilogy, or perhaps interplanetary romance. But I think the space trilogy is the wrong word. It doesn't where take place that, in space. Excuse do me. You know, do you know where that came from? The na- the space trilogy was that was a did a publisher put that in or did, did it I get think named they that? did. Lewis never uses that phrase in his letters or in his blurbs that he wrote. I think uh, if you say ransom, people have no idea what that means because they don't know who ransom is. I think they may have decided that the word ransom wasn't explanatory enough. Okay. Uh, I often actually saw on some of the covers, we have a great display at the Wade Center. We'll take the same book like Out of the Silent Planet or one of the Father Brown novels. And we'll show you different covers from the first edition British, which is almost always very staid and respectable. And then the first edition American, which will have all kinds of sci-fi figures and cartoons. It looks like a, looks like a comic book from the 40s. You can tell Americans are much more interested in selling books than the British. Uh, yeah, but uh, in one of those editions, they actually call it the Cosmic Trilogy on the on the cover. This is book two of the Cosmic Trilogy. I prefer the Ransom Trilogy, but if people don't know who Ransom is or what that word means, then I think the Cosmic Trilogy. But I, I actually, my public when I wrote Into the Region of Awe, I have a chapter on the this trilogy, and she convinced me. Most people call it the Space Trilogy. Why don't you just call it that? So I said, okay, I'm not going to make. And then the reviewers all said, why is he calling it the Space Trilogy? And his other bodies <laughs> said, don't call it that. So <laughs> Can't win. Obiashi you know. Maru. Yeah. So stick to your guns when you, when you get into a, a uh, discussion with an editor about changing things. Go with your own instincts. You, know? you may know better than they do. That was very helpful. More than you ever know. <laughs> <laughs> so which is your favorite? Uh, I refuse to say. Depends on what you're looking for. Oh, so man. if we're if we're keeping track at home, he didn't definitively tell us he's never been in the wardrobe. <laughs> he didn't definitively tell us if we landed on the moon or not, and he doesn't definitively tell us which of the ransom trilogy is his favorite. 
You uh, are so, horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what you mean by is. So I think I should probably throw that in at this point. Oh. Hey. <laughs> Lewis, Lewis would be very proud of uh, us defining our terms, I think. So that, that's, that's well-founded. Okay, I think we just have a, a handful of questions left. Um, Andy, are you going to jump in with the one that I texted you or you texted me? Oh, yeah, we could do that. Um, yeah. So, I, I, two, one's a little more lighthearted, one's a little more serious. When you're working on a project, we kind of ask our guests this. Is there some sort of a, a thing you need, like a snack, a drink, a certain cozy chair? Is there like a... Like something you just got to have when you're going to like pound out a, pa- a chapter or something like that, like some sort of a study guilty pleasure or something. Uh, the first thing I would say would be time, a block of time. Uh, normally, I, it's almost like running a marathon where it takes you about three miles to get warmed up and then you start f- hitting your stride. I find that when I try to write during the school year, the best thing for me to do is research and take notes and make outlines. But I like to have that three months of summer to really block out two weeks where almost nothing's going on. Uh, I assume that alcohol is out. You don't want to say, is there something you need? I assume that uh, a glass of white wine on my elbow would be the wrong answer for this podcast. The other thing for me would be, uh, <laughs> would be to have all my sources at hand. When you start getting a flow experience, I love this feeling that I'm conducting a seminar and I wrote one called The Most Reluctant Convert, Lewis's biography, his journey to faith. And so I want to have A.N. Wilson's biography. Uh, all the biographies are handy. This is before the uh, McGrath biography came out. But I love to say, well, here's what McGrath said, and here's what uh, Alan Jacobs said about this incident. And it really throws me off if I say, oh, I need to go to the library and get that, or I need to go online and try to clarify that. So my two things would be blocks of time and getting all the information and all the books and articles I need physically present in my workspace so I don't lose my momentum by having to go, you know, track it down somewhere. I'll just, I want to jump in right on the tail of that. And you mentioned, thank you for saying it again, because it reminded me. Uh, And actually, Tim, I don't even think we've talked with you about this, but anyway, we're going to tell you right now. Uh, So if you heard him mention this other book, The Most Reluctant Convert, uh, that is uh, being released. Uh, there's a movie version of that that is coming oh. out this month. And there's also a, uh, a theater. Uh, I don't know what I would call it, a company or a fellowship. I think the, the Fellowship of Performing Arts is the title. Right. Uh, but uh, there's a gal there that I've been talking with about potentially bringing that theater production to uh, Stevens Auditorium in Ames. And of course, sponsored by the Thinklings podcast. And, um, you know, how's that for books and business, Tim? But, uh, um, and so if you're listening to this and you're a college student or, you know, college students in the Des Moines Ames area, I think one of the biggest selling points for us getting that production is interest of college students. And so if you hear me on this podcast right now and you're like, I would love to go to that, uh, please send us an email at thinklingspodcast at gmail.com and indicate that because then I can send that info all over to the Fellowship of Performing Arts and uh, hopefully we can get them uh, back at Stevens with uh, the Most Reluctant Convert uh, show. So anyway, sorry to break in there, but you mentioned it and it triggered in my mind, like I need to mention this on the, on oh, the show. That, that's a good topic. I saw the, uh, the one-man play in 
Colorado, I got a standing ovation. Normally, you think a one-man play, you kind of rub your chin and think about it and have these quiet conversations. But people rose to their feet as soon as he was finished. It's a brilliant production. It's coming out as a movie on November 3rd. Uh, and he is urging people, Max McLean, who's the play C.S. Lewis, he's the, the father, the, uh, he's the founder of the Fellowship for Performing Arts. And when he does it at colleges, he actually asks that, that colleges reserve at least a quarter of the seats for college students. He wants yep. to reach young people. Mm. He doesn't want to just preach to the choir. Uh, we tried to bring that program to Wheaton last spring because of COVID. We had to cancel. Oh. Uh, he's working on an interesting sequel. We did a, a workshop over Zoom where he read his thoughts for a sequel where Lewis goes from being the most reluctant convert to being the reluctant prophet, as Alistair McGrath says. He didn't decide, well, now that I'm a Christian, I've got to get out and start evangelizing people. Uh, he was asked to do Problem of Pain, and uh, someone at the BBC liked that book so much. They said, can you do some broadcast talks for us? This is during the war. Yeah. And they were so well received that he turned that into the book Mere Christianity. Uh, he never set out to be a Christian apologist, but it just seemed to him his Christian duty to try to articulate the faith in a fresher way uh, for readers that had been. When I, you asked me if I read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe or the Narnia Chronicles when I was young, and my mother never got them for me. She got me a book called Pete and Penny. Play and pray. And it was very orthodox. But it was not a literary classic. I doubt if anyone's going to make a <laughs> film out of that. Uh, so, yes, I, we support uh, the Fellowship for Performing Arts because they can really reach young people. They also have a brilliant uh, production of the Screw Tape Letters, which also yep. saw that here in the Chicago area, got a standing ovation. Yes, if I were you, I would actually pursue that, actively pursue that because yeah. he wants his shows to reach young people. Uh, not just the the usual suspects that are already attending church and reading C.S. Lewis. Yeah, we we are in communication with some ministries in Ames, and it's interesting you mentioned the Screw Tape Letters because that is uh, the last show that the fellowship did in Ames at Stevens, and uh, I believe it was 2015. And I, I I didn't know that. I'm not just recalling that information. That's what uh, I the gal at the fellowship told me, which was great because we know that they know that Stevens works as far as a, a venue. Uh, but that's that, the, the goal of that whole project, we could call it at this point, is to uh, is, is evangelistic in nature to get uh, students at Iowa State and maybe DMAC and uh, Drake, and et cetera, to, uh, to go and watch that show about someone that they've probably heard about, but they might completely disagree with. Um, and so, yeah, stay tuned on that one, uh, listeners. But uh, so I think Andy has one more question that we always like to end with. And then, and then as soon as we're done with that, uh, Dr. Downing, we would love for you to close uh, our podcast with a devotional thought. So Andy, uh, I'll let you ask the question and then we'll just uh, sit back and listen. So, uh, Sorry, I'm making sure I had the right one. Um, so talk to us about how your wife has affected your ministry. Uh, a lot of times when you're in ministry, you're out doing the thing, uh, but you're, we're all, if you're married, that's like your other half. So how has your wife affected your ministry? Well, we met as undergraduates. Uh, she was an important part of my spiritual pilgrimage. Um, she had a very um, solid Christian upbringing and came to college with a lot of enthusiasm for her faith and a lot of depth in her reading, whereas I was struggling with my faith. So from the very beginning, 
he was an important component in my journey in terms of long conversations we had about Christianity and scripture. Um, we got married right after college. She uh, originally was just looking for some other job while I was going to be a professor. She got invited to teach. Uh, she was a secretary at a Christian high school, and they had uh, a couple of uh, teachers absent. So they said, would you be the substitute? And she was so dynamic as a substitute. The following year, they said, would you come on as a full-time teacher? And she loved teaching high school students so much that she kind of got the bee in her bonnet that she'd also like to be a college professor. So I went to UCLA first. And when I was finished, I was teaching at Westmont, Santa Barbara. She got her PhD in UC Santa Barbara. And wow. as I was interested in C.S. Lewis, she was interested in Dorothy Sayers, who was the detective novelist, who later oh, wrote yeah. a lot of uh, very provocative theological works. So we would come to the Wade Center together as scholars, and I would study Lewis and Tolkien, and she would study Dorothy Sayers. She just had a book come out last fall on Sayers, which was one of the uh, Book of the Week awards by Choice, which is a, a secular organization which picks out good books. Um, so now we, uh, we came to the Wade because we both had a lot of research interest. We also really liked the people. We liked Wheaton students, the faculty. It's really a great Christian community. Uh, we don't have any children, so we're able to travel. Uh, we we want we talk about to, in the old days you had to take the world to the Wade. You had to come visit the Wade to get benefits from it. We want to take the Wade to the world, so we do a lot of speaking out of the country, out of out of Illinois. We do the podcast, we do a lot of the book launches. So our idea is to uh, use modern technology to make the Wade insights available to a much broader audience. We have a podcast that has reached over a hundred countries. We have listeners in places like Malaysia and Turkey and Pakistan. And I'll get notes from people on Facebook that says, I have a little Christian church here of 70 people in Bangalore and we love listening to your podcast. I think they're these little Christian enclaves that want to connect to the larger uh, global Christian uh, you know, movement and kingdom. And so it's a real ministry to help rescue them from their feeling of isolation. They're going to have Christian friends all over the world. I forgot. So anyway, that's, I think the answer to your question is we're, we're very much a team. Yeah. Uh, we each have our own specialization. We both like speaking. We both like teaching. We both like publishing. Uh, we're, we're, we have a little race going on books. Right now, I think I'm one ahead. I've published six books and she's published five so <laughs> that's awesome yeah i'm kind of resting so, on my laurels until she catch, catches up and then i'll try to get going again so i'm interested in uh as a dorothy sayers uh, your wife being a dorothy sayers scholar what's her ideas with classical christian education the trivium oh uh, well we get invited to a lot of conferences because of this famous essay called the lost tools of learning by dorothy sayers. yes and she was one of the earliest to say you need to match educational curriculum to the child's stage of development, emotional and intellectual development. Uh, so we just spoke at a conference out in Oregon, and Crystal spoke a lot about the lost tools of learning. I love these homeschooling conferences. We have to go to conferences of older people who uh, already love Lewis, they already love Tolkien. You sort of feel like you're preaching to the choir. Uh, but when we go to homeschooling conferences, they're often uh, parents in their 30s who really want to know 
what should I be teaching my children and how should I be teaching them? And how should I give them some sort of a buffer from, from all the adverse effects of you know, the secular world? And so they really listen and take notes and they ask really good questions. And when I went out to the book table in the lobby at this conference in Oregon, there was a first year Latin. Here's Dante with the Italian on one page and the English on the other page. I've never been to a conference with those kind of resources available on the book table. So we're excited about that movement. Um, yeah. yeah, we are, you know, our children that they're involved in a classical com uh, mm -hmm. classical community. And uh, we really, Lost Tools of Learning is something that we're quite familiar with. Carter has it as actually a reading for one of his classes. So um, it's something that we're really interested in and exploring and excited about as well. Yeah, it's an insightful essay and it's also witty. I like how yeah. she says, now the perch stage is we love to catch people making a mistake, especially your elders. And she says, this, this stage of uh, childhood has a high nuisance factor. So yeah, it's a witty essay as well as being an insightful essay. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's interesting that you mention, you know, walking out and looking at the book table and you're like, oh, this is, this is unique. Uh, there's Latin here, you know? And uh, I was visiting, uh, I have a friend who's a music faculty at uh it's a classical christian school in boise and uh i got a tour and i'm sitting in this uh guy's office and uh it was the time when the senior and junior uh dissertations or thesis were coming through and uh he had one on his desk that he was uh reviewing and i was like can i take a look at that and uh yeah sure and i started flipping through it and I was like, man, you know, this girl is a junior in high school and I think she's smarter than me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, it's like one of the, you know, I think there's something to this. <laughs> uh, but yeah. anyway, I just, I, uh, I related to that thought. But anyway, why don't, why don't you go ahead and uh, close us off? One more thing. Uh, we also went to a oh. Chesterton conference and they have a movement called Chesterton Academy, which are, are classical learning mainly for uh, people, Roman Catholics. And Dale Alquist, who's a respected Chesterton uh, scholar, he's the one who came up with the idea of a Chesterton Academy. And they, 10 years ago, there was one Chesterton Academy in Minneapolis, and now there are 50 all over the country, and there's some in Iraq, and there's some in Africa. And I said, boy, you must be a really successful promoter. And he said, no, not at all. He said, people just want something different so badly. They're really open yeah. to alternative ideas. And the way he put it, I loved it. He said, my friend and I were just rubbing two sticks together. And everybody started gathering around us for warmth. I, I thought that was a great metaphor of how people are really looking for new ideas and alternative education. Um, okay, do you want me to mention a, a Bible passage, which is one of my favorites? Absolutely. Just do okay. it. Take us wherever you want. Yeah. Okay. I'm in 2 Kings 6, uh, where Elisha and his servant are surrounded by the Syrian army. I'll read a short passage. And the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was round about the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Fear not, for those that are with us are more than those that are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses chariots of fire round about Elisha. And I love that passage because when the young man can only see the world in material terms, 
he's uh, totally fearful and daunted. He's surrounded by uh, an enemy army. And it doesn't even say that Elisha could see the angels in the chariots. He said, open his eyes that he could see the angels in the chariots. And you wonder if Elisha just knew they were there and he didn't need to see the spiritual dimension of the situation. Elisha is very relaxed. And he says, open his eyes. And suddenly the servant sees the horses and the chariots of fire. I love that as a, an image of what Christian writers are trying to do. Often people are looking at their lives in a purely material dimension. And, a dimension. and they may be fearful. They may be daunted. They may be uh, uh, disoriented. And part of the job of Christian fiction writers, such as the ones we've been talking about, is to open their eyes to that spiritual dimension. Once you see that there's reality is so much larger than what you can see with your eyes, it's going to give you a completely different perspective. So I love that incident in uh, the Old Testament as an image of the Christian artist, especially the Christian fantasy writer, trying to open people's eyes to the spiritual dimension of life to get them. It really can be transformative to see that life is not just what you see around you, but there's this whole other world, which gives you a completely different perspective on the meaning of our lives and uh, the one who's control of control of our lives. Man, you know, if we had another hour right there, that idea of what we see is not necessarily representative of what's really around us, that right there is the springboard for us to go right on into Owen Barfield and just ha have a great old time. <laughs> but maybe not this episode. <laughs> we'll save that for a later conversation. That's, that's right. Um, but uh, Dr. Downing, we're so thankful that you, uh, you came here and uh, we're willing to discuss uh, all these things, Lewis and Narnia and wardrobe with us. And uh, listener, if you uh, heard something here that you uh, liked or were intrigued by, you can email us or I just encourage you, man, get on over to Wheaton and uh, visit the Wade Center, see what's there and uh, pick up one of uh, Dr. Downing's books or the books we've mentioned and dive on into thinking more about uh, Lewis and Narnia and uh, these ideas of the spirituality around us. So Thank you again, Dr. Downing, for a great, uh, great time of fellowship. Thank you so much to all of you. I really appreciated this conversation. Uh, these really do feel, I wish you would all come to Wheaton. We could just sit around the dinner table for about four hours and hash these things out. So uh, you I think we need to do that. Okay. We got to come out there and see you sometime. Let's try well, to do we that. We love that. You'd be welcome anytime. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys have anything you want to, closing remarks here? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. It was it was really great chatting with you, Dr. Downing. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation as well. Blessings on all of you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.